message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Right, what I would like to do this morning is take, is take a bit of time to look at a story about Jesus from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Am I in the... I'm getting dazzled there slightly. Um, if you, would, if you have a Bible handy, you might like to turn up at Matthew chapter 21. Now, um, before I read that, I think it's just, I, I, let's just um, say a little bit about some of the background to what was going on at this particular time in the world when, when, when Jesus was walking the, um, the land of, of Palestine, Israel, um, whichever you wish to call it. Because when I was growing up, I, supp- I suppose I, I grew up in a Christian family, and one grows up with all these children's storybooks about Jesus, and they're all beautifully, brightly coloured. The sun is always shining. It's always sort of quite idyllic. And I've increasingly realised recently that that actually was not the way that it was. It was, in fact, one of the most troubled times in history. Sometimes I think, in fact, the only real comparison nowadays to the, the extent of the, the trouble, attention, the, the pain that was being experienced at that particular time is probably, well, the, the current Middle East. Um, think some things don't change very much. Um, but it was a time of tremendous pressure. It was a time of tremendous tension, a lot of violence. Um, just a few examples I could pull out there. Um, at the time of Jesus' birth, which is some... Um, 33 years before, or 30 years or so before the story that I'm going to read to you today, there was a revolt in Jerusalem in which 2,000 revolutionaries were crucified. Um, there were multiple other revolts um, over the course of his lifetime. And um, the Roman ruler at the time was a, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate who was noted for uh, his repressive and violent approach to ruling. And there were multiple protests, multiple revolts under his time. Um, There was a mass protest about a plan he initiated to bring the Roman standards, the symbols of Roman rule, into Jerusalem. Uh, There was some resistance to his plan to build, um, to to start some building projects, funding them with the Jews' money in the temple, and he crushed their resistance with great violence. Um, There were even some Galileans who were killed in the temple of Jerusalem while they were sacrificing. So this was a time of tremendous tension. There was always just revolt just simmering under the surface. Tremendous anger. The whole place was like a tinderbox. And the story I want to read you today, in that context, begins to look perhaps a bit more provocative than sometimes we've realised. Now the story in in Matthew 21 that I'm going to look at is one that uh, is set about a week before the Easter events. Um, Often people preach on this particular passage on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, but uh, I decided we we could do it now anyway. Uh, This is uh, Matthew chapter 21, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through to um, 13. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their coats on their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Just want to pray. Father God, we thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for all that he achieved for us on the cross. Thank you that all he achieved through his life, death and resurrection. And I just ask that as we consider this story set in that final week this morning, you would speak to our hearts and that you would help us to understand more about who Jesus is and what is the mission of Jesus to this world, to our world, to our cities and our streets and our workplaces. And ask that you would take us take hold of us and catch us up also in the mission of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I wonder what you think of when you, when you think of donkeys. Uh, there may be various different images that come to mind, I suppose. For some of you, it may be Eeyore, um, Winnie the Pooh's miserable friend. For some of you, it may be that exceptionally irritating donkey from the Shrek films. Um, some of you, it may be those rather undignified rides on the seaside where, um, where someone gets on a donkey and is carried along and they just look really not terribly impressive. And so it may seem puzzling to us that when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, he gets this tremendous reception of people laying down their coats in the road and shouting these amazing claims. Now, one thing we have to bear in mind here is actually donkeys at, at that date, they, they weren't seen as comical particularly in the way we might see them. They were basically just a standard beast of burden. So I suppose, in, in a sense, for us to think of Jesus coming in on a donkey, um, well, we may, we may interpret that perhaps in a slightly different way to the way they would have done. For them, uh, the donkey was just a, a, the standard beast of burden. It was just a means of transport. I dare say the modern equivalent would be something like the Voxlastra, which I drive, which is a thoroughly uninteresting vehicle, um, but very practical and quite economical. Um, and so when Jesus arrives on a donkey, okay, maybe it wouldn't have seemed silly, but it might not necessarily have seemed particularly striking. It might not have seemed particularly out of the ordinary. And yet you still get this rather extraordinary response where people are saying, blessed is he, this man, who comes in the name of the Lord, just because he's on a donkey. So why this response? Well, actually, Jesus was, in a sense, acting out something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And in those days, they tended to know the Old Testament probably rather better than we do, uh, because we tend to avoid all the, uh, very much of it, because it just seems a little bit weird. Um, but for them, they knew it well. 
And um, they, many of them would have been familiar with this prophecy that comes from the book of Zechariah, and, uh, which is quoted, in fact, in, in Matthew's version of, of this event, where um, the, the version actually in Zechariah says this. is Zechariah chapter 9. And verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when Jesus comes in on this donkey, it's not just a matter of, oh, he's simply arriving in town on an ordinary beast of burden. People would have made the connection in many cases. And people did make the connection, it seems. Matthew clearly did. Many others in the city may have made that connection. Now, what's interesting about the passage Matthew quotes there is that it's a, it's a passage which talks about, firstly, God's judgment. And so there's this sense that when this king is arriving on the donkey, this is bad, a bad day for Israel's enemies and a good day for Israel. Judgment is coming. And so I suspect when many of the people of Jesus' time saw Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, his reputation had gone before him a little bit, maybe they thought, yes, here comes our leader, the one who is going to rise up with a sword and take the fight to our enemies. Here comes the day of the revolt. And remember, as I said earlier, this was a time when people were ready to revolt. They were ready to rise up. They were just waiting for the leader. They were just waiting for someone who would come and say, get your swords, come, we'll drive the Romans out of our land. So many people, when they saw Jesus doing this, that would have been their response. We're going to reclaim Jerusalem. We're going to reclaim the temple. That would have been perhaps what they would have thought. And yet, and yet, there are some things that they missed. For, of course, when Zechariah prophesies about this king coming to Jerusalem, he does not prophesy a king coming on a war horse. And the Jews were used to soldiers and armies arriving with mighty horses. It is a king coming on just a standard means of transport, not coming with military paraphernalia, not coming with um, sword, and, in fact, it even uses the word gentle. And I think some people missed that. I think they didn't realise that this king was not the type of king that perhaps they were after. Now, when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in this way, my suspicion is there would have been a multitude of different expectations, different hopes, different fears. We could perhaps pick out a few. There would have been those, as I've just said, who were longing to take up the sword and drive out the Romans by force. And they would have thought, yes, this is the day of our deliverance. We've heard about Jesus. He does miracles. Surely now we can get rid of the Romans. Perhaps that would have been their response. There may have been others, perhaps those who ruled the temple, who would possibly have been a little more nervous about this because they knew about these events, like the Galileans being killed in the temple. And so as soon as you come, uh, as soon as someone like Jesus arrives doing something that provocative, in this particular climate of violence and fear, the ruling classes of the Jews may have been a bit anxious because for, me, for many of them, what was important was maintaining the status quo, keeping things as they were. You know, things were not too bad, providing we can appease the Romans. And so when someone arrives um, consciously acting out the prophecy of Zechariah, they would have thought, no, this is not good. This is bad news. As for the Romans themselves... Well, perhaps they wouldn't have got that resonance with the prophecy of Zechariah. They wouldn't have realised that there was, this, there, was, there was this historical background. 
But any, any situation where you get a bit of a disturbance there, where you get someone coming into Jerusalem and being welcomed in this way is going to start ringing alarm bells for them. And so for Jesus, arriving on a donkey, well, all sorts of different expectations, all sorts of different hopes, all sorts of different responses. That prophecy in Zechariah speaks of one coming who is the Messiah, in a sense. It doesn't call him that in so many words, but it was understood that that was what this prophecy was talking about. The Messiah is coming. And many people would have seen that, but we are still left with the question, what does it mean to be the Messiah? What does the Messiah look like? Does the Messiah come with a sword in hand, coming to kill, coming to drive out with violence? Or is the Messiah going to be something rather different? What will the Messiah be like? What will Jesus do next? If they had WWJD bracelets, it wouldn't have been what would Jesus do, it would be what will Jesus do, of course. What will he do next? What's happening? Now he's arrived. Is he going to stir up an armed rebellion? Is he going to take on the Romans? Is he going to perhaps go in and, and rearrange things in the temple? You know, think, some people, of course, in those days thought that actually that the problem was the temple had been um, corrupted. And they thought maybe this is what needed cleaning out. And they thought, right, if we can restore the temple to how it should be, then, well, effectively, maybe the Romans all leave on their own. They knew stories from the Old Testament where God descended and wiped out in one day the armies of the enemies. And maybe some of them were thinking, okay, Jesus will come in. He will purify the temple. And then the temple will be at the center of our life again. And things will be okay. The Romans will have to leave because the presence of God is with us. So what is it that Jesus is going to do? Now, as we saw when we read the passage, Jesus followed one provocative act with another. Because he goes into the temple. In fact, in Mark's version of this, it says he goes into the temple, he looks around for a bit and comes back the next day. Uh, Matthew uh, takes a leap forward straight away onto the next day. And we get this extraordinary event where Jesus goes into the temple and starts to cause chaos. In the outer courts of the temple, it seems, there were all sorts of people selling animals. These were all things needed for the temple system to work. People needed animals to sacrifice. There was money changing going on. And so Jesus goes in there and he causes chaos. He turns over the tables. He drives people out with a whip. And once again, I suppose we are left thinking, well, what does this mean? Why is he doing this? And for some of us, again, we might think, well, maybe, maybe this is what I was talking about a few minutes ago. Maybe it is that Jesus has come to clean out the temple. The temple is going to be set up at its rightful place again, and the Romans will leave under the power of God. But actually, we get a hint that Jesus' intentions are actually rather more drastic than that in the way he describes his own actions. And we see this in verse um, 13, where Jesus says this, this is his way of interpreting, I suppose, what, is, what he has done. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. He's quoting again from the Old Testament here. He's quoting from two different places. That first bit, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, comes from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56. Isaiah chapter 56 is a tremendously exciting chapter in which is prophesied the coming of all the nations of the earth to worship God. 
It is a day, it is a passage of tremendous hope. When even the other nations are going to come to Israel, not to conquer it, not to smash it down as the Romans had done, but to join in worshipping God. And so it says this, about this is looking to a future day. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus' agenda is not just about restoring Israel to being a, a, a whatever sort of world power it was at the time. It's not about just you know, getting them back in the, on the political scene and getting the Romans out. Jesus' agenda, Jesus' intention is to recapture this hope of all the nations coming to God. All the nations of the world streaming to Yahweh, the God of heaven, coming to worship. That is his hope, and that is his mission, and that is the mission to which Israel had been called and too often had failed. Now, the second part of, the thing, of what Jesus says here, in, in, as, he, as he described, as he explains in some sense his actions, is this. You are making it a den of robbers. Once again, this comes from the Old Testament. This is from Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7. This is a much, much darker chapter. This is a chapter that speaks of judgment on Jerusalem. And it is a chapter in which Jeremiah basically says to the Israelites, if you don't sort yourselves out, the temple is going to be destroyed. And in fact, that was what happened. Jeremiah wrote in the... Uh, the, the uh, what would it have been, early 6th century BC, and shortly after, the temple was destroyed. And so when Jesus uses these words to describe what he's doing, once again, some of those listening may have picked up that allusion, that, that link, that idea that Jesus is saying, you, you, you know, you've made this a den of robbers, and some people, for that, that might have rung a bell, and they thought, den of robbers, I've heard that somewhere. That was in Jeremiah. Which chapter? They go and get it out, and they see, ah, it's the chapter in which the destruction of the temple is prophesied. Now, this is a bit more drastic than Jesus just coming to kind of clean out the temple and get it running, working right again. It's much more drastic than that. It's in a sense, Jesus is saying, I'm coming in God's judgment with two agendas. The main one is the restoration of the mission of God to all nations. But also, this is going to involve the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem, which had been the centre of their faith. And, it doesn't say it here, but also in, tied up with that agenda is the, re, is the replacement of that temple with something better. This was something that perhaps they didn't really see at the time. Now, within days, Jesus was dead. And so those who had seen him riding into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, perhaps thought to themselves, well, there goes another failed revolt leader. We thought he was coming to do something big, but he didn't. Perhaps those who had picked up what Jesus was saying in the temple, 
would have thought, well, he meant well, he had a big vision, but he challenged the temple, you know, that's the end of it. And so it would have looked, when Jesus died on the cross, as though his whole mission had failed. As if that was the end. And yet, as we know from the story of Easter Sunday, that mysterious and wonderful day, that was not the end, because God raised Jesus from the dead. And in raising Jesus from the dead, suddenly the mission comes a lot to life again. Suddenly it begin, you, one begins to think, maybe, maybe this was actually the king. Yes, this is the king. Because God has shown by raising Jesus from the dead that he is the king. And that mission is still going on. That mission to all the nations to call them in to God's grace. What about the destruction of the temple? Well, as many of you may know, 70 AD, the temple was flattened. And in that, in a sense, Jesus' prophecy, Jesus, what Jesus acted out, came true. Because in Jesus, the temple, which was, it was kind of almost like, I suppose, in one sense, a bridge between man and God. It was a place where people could come to sacrifice, to deal with their sins, a place where they could come to, um, to make things right with God. In Jesus, suddenly, that was no longer necessary. And so the temple was swept away. Because in Jesus, on the cross, we see, at one, in one sense, we see a perfect sacrifice for our sins. And so in Jesus, we have a way to enter into God's holy place. We have a way to draw near. And we also see in Jesus' resurrection that he is the king. That he is the one who has authority. And in one sense, we may think that is, yes, that is an alarming thing. Because those who have authority can use it in all sorts of different ways. And yet in Jesus, what sort of authority do we see? We see the one who is gentle. We see that the king, the true king of all the earth, is the one who rides into Jerusalem, gentle, on a donkey, not with a sword, but the one who comes to bring that kind of peace, and that one who comes to lift up, not to tread down, the one who comes to restore and rebuild, not to crush, and the one who calls every nation, all peoples of all nations, into his family. And so in this, there is, for us, I suppose, that a challenge and an encouragement for so often when we hear about Jesus. With Jesus, the challenge is often greater. It's funny, so when you hear some people talking about the New Testament, they'll say things like, oh, I really like Jesus, but I don't like Paul. For me, I find Jesus quite alarming. <laughs> Jesus scares me sometimes because the challenge of what he brings to us is so great. He won't let you alone. He will keep pressing his agenda on you of grace, his agenda of mercy to all the nations. And so there is a challenge to us, and that is a challenge to us that where we find ourselves in positions of authority, that we use that properly, because Jesus has remodelled the way authority works. He's turned it over, and he's made leadership fundamentally about being a servant, and he's made authority about lifting up, not crushing down. And so if we are called to leadership, as many of us are in many different spheres of life, we're called to reflect in that the mercy and grace of Jesus because that is what God's rule is like. And that is the kind of ruling, the kind of leading that we are called to live in. 
But what an encouragement there is here as well. Because Jesus is the king. And he is a king of whom you can use the word, the adjective gentle. He's kind, as we've heard earlier. He's the one who draws the children to himself. I always find it slightly amusing that in the, in the Gospels, in the, in the stories about Jesus, his disciples were always ran away when there were soldiers coming, but they were very good at defending Jesus against the children. They could keep the children away very well. And he kept having to say to them, no, let the children come to me. Because that's the heart of Jesus, to let everyone come to him, to draw them in. And there is that invitation to all of us, which goes on and on um, and spreads out beyond us. That call to get caught up in God's mission of mercy and grace to the world. I'm going to finish with... A prayer. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for taking that pain. And thank you for winning such a victory. A victory that propels forward your mission of mercy, your mission of, of indeed recreation, of new life. I thank you that we are invited to be caught up in that. And I just ask that you would help us to see more and more clearly what spheres um, you have placed us in to advance your kingdom in this world and what you are doing in our lives to enable that to happen. So I ask that you would give us insight, you would give us courage to walk the way of Jesus, that we would have boldness to do that because we see on the one hand such a provocation in Jesus, that he was not afraid to take on the powers of the world. And yet also we see such gentleness and such kindness. And I just ask that in us as individuals, in us as churches, we would reflect that kind of life more and more thoroughly, more and more transparently in our workplaces, in our families, in everything that we do. May we live the life of Jesus.